0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. The world of entertainment has been going through an incredible shift due to the numerous disruptors that have entered the sector over the last several years. Companies like Netflix, Amazon, Apple, and others have made The big Hollywood studios, the TV networks, and other traditional media outlets rethink how they approach the idea of being successful. Raul Telang is a professor of information systems and management at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. He's also co-author of a book that addresses this shift called Streaming, Sharing, Stealing, Big Data and the Future of Entertainment. And Raul joins us here in the studio. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. It, it has been, I, I think about it a lot, but it, it has been crazy how this industry has shifted so much in, in realistically about a 10 to 15-year span. Totally. Um, one of the terms that we describe in the book is called
1: the perfect storm. Yeah. That is, over the last 10 years, with the growth of internet and broadband, which brought piracy, that means that the the studios and the labels and the publishers' ability to control the content diminished significantly. It led to the growth of retailers like Amazon, who now have tremendous power over the distribution. So they decide what consumers want to buy, what is put in front of the consumers, and even pricing and distribution. And now we have the online platforms like Netflix, who not only have become very powerful when it comes to content distribution, but they are also now getting into the content production and with their deep financial pockets, and most importantly, their ability to know their consumers because they have consumer-specific data. They know what people are watching Mm -hmm. at what time, what they like, what they don't like, and they're using that information into both creating the content as well as distributing the content. And I think you know that's really one of the significant changes that have happened over the last fifteen years as so, you said.
0: So how do you think the the traditional media that we've known for the last you know forty or 50 years, the CBSs and the ABCs of the world in TV and and the the mo- big movie studios, how have they handled this transition? Obviously there was a you know a period of time where they had to adjust to it, but they realistically couldn't take a lot of time to adjust to it because that meant lost revenue.
1: Yeah, so there are, um, you know, one way if you look at it is let's just take an example of Netflix. Right. Um, in the earlier periods, and even now, Netflix to an extent relies on the content by the studios and the television networks. And I think you see the evidence that sometimes there is a little bit of reluctance to provide that content to the Netflix. Sure. Um, but now that the Netflix is based, Netflix is getting into content production. Um, I think. For this for the for the studios and and the te- traditional networks, really, they have to figure out a way to create and distribute and even appeal to the content you know where the users have gotten used to nonlinear way of watching the content. Sure. you know the days of nine to nine forty five, prime time slots. I mean, I think most of the younger generation and probably a significant number of even older generation, I think they are not watching content that way anymore. So these guys have to figure out how they can create, generate and package the content and get on the platform right. to appeal to uh, and to cater to this uh, this new way of watching content.
0: And it's part of the reason why these uh, these traditional outlets, especially the TV networks, have felt the need to have some sort of subscription service, whether that be, you know, free content available, uh, you know, on demand, which has been around for for a decent amount of time. But CBS trying to do their own a service to get people to watch their shows. You know,
1: but this is this is another challenge. You know, the if you look at the economics or even the history of these online platforms, Netflix, Netflix is not the only one. Un, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, these markets tend to be winner take all. That is, once I become a subscriber to Netflix, you know, people are not very keen on then going to other platforms to consume the content. So the challenge for these other players now is that what platform they want to patronize that people are willing to actually go and pay attention and listen to it. Uh Otherwise, you're back to square one where, you know, people are patronizing Netflix. And now how do I... How do I convert those people to come to me? And I think that's a challenge.
0: I guess it really does start with the advent of the smartphone, doesn't it? I mean, when, when, when smartphones started to come around, that's when it really started to change.
1: Because the mobility, yeah. you know essentially untethered people from the television set. at least it made it. I mean internet made it possible, but still yeah. you were stuck to your chair, you still are looking at the, you know your desktop or even your laptop. now mobile and the bandwidth, the, the 3G and 4G networks yeah. and the technology that makes streaming on mobile so much more efficient absolutely gave users an ability to now stream content not only at any time but anywhere
0: right it it also also has obviously had an effect on uh how uh companies decide that they want to advertise uh the fact that uh you know you have certain events that may happen within a tv network that still sell very well super bowl is, is obviously one but for the most part a lot of these companies don't don't think that the traditional way of advertising that maybe they did 20 years ago is even close to the way they want to do it these days.
1: I mean, this, again, goes back to the non-linear way people are watching TV. Even on a regular TV network, people are DVRing the show, skipping the advertisement. Right. How do you support the content from your advertising revenue, which used to be really the key business revenue earner, mm-hmm. itself is going to be a challenge. You know, Netflix has clearly gone into the subscription model where they sure. don't have to rely necessarily on, on the advertising money, but most of the TV networks are clearly dependent heavily on advertising money.
0: We are joined here in the studio by Raul Telang, who is a professor at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. He's also co-author of a new book called Streaming, Sharing, Stealing, Big Data and the Future of Entertainment. This is also, I mean, we've talked a little bit about movies and, and television, but it's the same way for the music industry and also for the, the industry of book publishing as well, correct? Totally. I think... I think it goes the technology disruption that has
1: happened over the last 15 years and and, you know the technology disruption had taken place even earlier you know the walkman came and yeah. and the uh, the vcr came and and the dvd players came and they all disrupted the industry to an extent but right. none of them became the vehicle as a direct competition right. you know they the the companies were able to adapt themselves and actually started making more money you know once the vcr came the home sure. entertainment really exploded and you know really added to the revenues i think it is the it is this new technology, number one, what it did was, it especially for music, since you asked about it, um, the proliferation of piracy had such yeah. a large impact that yeah. now I can't sell my content at $14.99 that I was able to do 10 years ago. Right. So now you need to come back and figure out how do I price, how do I distribute? Then Apple came in and Apple started, iTunes started dominating yeah. and basically dictating the terms. Now, I think the iTunes market is in decline, but now the streaming services have come in. You know, the Spotify's of the world, which are basically now the dominant way to... Sure. to, to and I think how the labels and artists are making money is so different than 15 years ago. Right. 15 years ago, CDs made the money. Yep. And concerts were way You advertise the CD. Sure, yeah. Today... Concerts make the money, yep. and kind of CDs are a way to advertise concerts. It's literally a three hundred and sixty degree change.
0: So it shows to a degree why there are certain artists, musical artists out there that will are more willing to to decide to play a stadium tour than they would be in inside an arena, because you can put fifty to sixty thousand people in a, in a football stadium compared to putting fifteen thousand in a, in an arena.
1: Totally, I think. I mean, if you look at the music industry, right, I mean, the way the revenues are coming in right. is, is, is that's where the money is. The concerts and and these tours is really where the artists are making money. But that also means that the traditional company's leverage uh-huh. and power that they had is, is diminishing, right? I mean, in the old days, you need to sign with a label because the label is the one who can promote you. The sure. label is the one who is going to put you in front of the radio. The label had all the distributional power. Right as that power has diminished because the new technology, new platforms have come in, I mean, nowadays you also see a lot of artists going independent, you know, maybe going solo, maybe going yeah. with the smaller independent labels. And that's really one of the shifts that's happening is that these, um, you know, whether it's publishers or studios or labels, mm-hmm. if you look at the 50 years, 60 years of history, a few firms dominated. Right. And the dominance came from all the power they had. They had scale, to, to find the artist, and they had scaled to promote and distribute the artist. New platforms have come in, piracy has come in, Netflix of the world have come in, and now all that power has diminished.
0: Yeah, the interesting thing is is shifting off of that to something like the film industry, mm-hmm. uh, you still have that reliance for the most part, especially on the bigger bigger name films, the ones that the theaters spend a lot, or the companies spend a lot of money on, of releasing it in the theater you want to still have that. And it's interesting because in this shifting dynamic of platforms in this industry, mm-hmm. theaters are still the main platform that that they think about. Now that may change in, you know, 50 years down the road, but at least right now we've gone through this shift in all these other fields, yet the theaters are still a very important piece to the film industry.
1: Right, so the most common way the content in the film industry always was distributed is what is called the sequential release. So the movie right. will come in theater, then it'll go in the home entertainment, then it'll come on television, HBO, what have you. It's like a, what we call a, the windowing strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're right that the, the model is still very much like what it was, that the theaters are still a dominating feature. Mm-hmm. But if you look at over the last few years, the the, the length of the window has been squeezing quite a bit. That is the time it takes between a movie when it shows up in a theater versus when it sure. comes on a DVD. Right. It has been, you know, it has been shrinking, um, you know, quite a bit. Um, I think there are also, you know, obviously the movie industry wants to monetize the content as much as they can. Sure. Um, even if sometimes the studio wants to maybe release the content earlier on other channels, they obviously feel resistance from you know, the theater association saying, well, you need to give us three months. Right. As you said, I think maybe 10 years down the line, we are going to see a significant shift. I mean, Netflix is going to make movies and Netflix is going to put the movie for streaming on probably within no time.
0: Uh, how important then are companies like Netflix and, and and Amazon as well? Because Amazon is is into it totally. just as much as, as anybody else. How important are their philosophies towards this industry now, for the next you know twenty, thirty years,
1: so so I think you know the best example I can give is if you look at the way the traditional firms have operated, most of the time, and sometimes because of the lack of hard data they had, sometimes the lack of training they had to look at the data. Many decisions were made, what we call, is on a gut-feel basis. Sure. You know, this yeah. is likely to be successful. This artist is likely to... Su- and then they, you know, then they promote that artist or promote that movie and hope that it works. Right. You know, there was a very famous quote by William Goldman says, nobody knows anything. Right. You look at Amazon and the Netflix and the Googles of this world, they make data-driven decisions. Sure. You know, you talk to the executives in Amazon and Google and say, look, if you don't have data to support your decision, I will not make that decision. Yeah. So everything is testing, everything is data collection, so they have a culture where the decision need to be, needs to be made based on hard data. And luckily, they have access to data. Right. Amazon has millions of customers, Netflix has 80 million customers, they can look at their preferences, they can look at what people are watching, what right. they prefer, what they don't prefer. So... If you look at the traditional firms versus some of the new platforms, I think a fundamental difference is that the new platforms are going data-driven decision-making. This is how I'm going to price. This is right. how I'm going to distribute. This is how maybe I will incorporate that into even my content production. Uh-huh. And, you know, as I said in the book, obviously, it's hard to say who's going to be the winner. Yeah. Um, what we know is that the data-driven decision-making – is going to play an important role, no matter who you are. Right. Because I think uh, that's really where that's really where the market is going.
0: Raul Chalang joins us here in the studio, Professor of Information Systems and Management at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, also co-author of the book called Streaming, Sharing, and Stealing. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Uh, it is interesting, though, that that Netflix... In some respects, they took a gamble on a on a on a show like House of Cards. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it had the success that it you know has had is just it just reinforces that that's the way that a lot of these uh, a lot of these entities within the TV industry are really having to go. And in some respects, I think it's also changed the model of the TV show at the network level where they think instead of a 22-episode season, they think more of like maybe a 10-episode season where they put one show in the fall and one show in the spring, and you're getting more content out there, but you're also probably getting more data on which shows people end up liking.
1: Right. In fact, we give an example in the book about, you know, uh, how House of Cards actually came into being. So House of Cards was pitched to various networks, including to the Netflix. Um, It was a political drama. People, obviously, in the traditional network were not very sure whether a political drama does really well. Yeah. And West after West Wing, really, there hasn't been a whole lot of success. Sure. Here comes Netflix with the 30 million customers' data and viewing habits in hand. They look at, you know, they have information, peop, how many people like Kevin Spacey, how many people like David Fincher, how many like the combination, how many people are already renting the DVDs of the British drama from which House of Cards was derived. Yeah. And they felt very confident based on the information and data they had that this was going to be, you know, highly likely to be successful. Right. Um, so they bid for it. You know, they decide, OK, we don't need one episode at a time. We don't need five pilot episodes. Let's just sign for two seasons. Right. Yeah. And once they had it, they created six different trailers to appeal to different segments. Somebody might like this. So let them... Uh, see this version of the trailer, a trailer, somebody might like something else. And, and look at that combination you know with, with with all the some of them was with the data driven decision making yeah. they were able to turn something into obviously a very very popular show and, and, and
0: that and that kind of philosophy the, the example of the six trailers right there that's something that a lot of movie theaters now are starting to use I remember when the latest Star Wars film came out correct. they they kept putting different types of trailers out there mm-hmm. to appeal to, uh, to different consumers now Star Wars may be something that's so big right. that everybody, or mostly everybody, seemingly right. enjoys it, but it's the same philosophy. Right,
1: except that Netflix can literally do one-on-one marketing. Yeah. You know, theaters yeah. still have to rely on aggregate level. You know, they can get some information about, you know, what what demographic people are coming from, what location people are coming from. So will
0: that change how the theaters maybe in the future actually... You know, you know, are are interacting with people in the seat. I mean, the, the style of seat that they have, there'll be more connectivity within the seat. So you can get that actual data when somebody puts their backside down in the chair to watch a movie.
1: It is possible, but still at some level, the theatrical experience is still everybody's watching the same thing, right? Uh, versus a Netflix experience where you could be watching something else, I could be watching something else, you could stop after 10 minutes and I could still continue, you could do binge watching. I mean, all of those features that are so much uh, part of a Netflix platform, I think not not that easy to replicate sometimes.
0: How has then, for the film industry, how has the blockbuster film kind of changed because of this shift? Uh, I mean, the theaters are still spending uh, on on certain films, hundreds of millions of dollars on on these films. Uh, has, has that philosophy had to change at so, all? So,
1: um, you know, we, this is a good point. I mean, we had some conversation with some of the studios, you know, Legendary, for example. Yeah. Um, one of the big challenge the studios have is they spend millions of dollars in promotion. Yeah. You know, the television advertising, reaching out to people. And... Again, it's one of those things when you don't have very good information, you don't have very good data. You just kind of blast everybody with yeah. a broadcast message, and not some some of it is not very effective. So, one of the things that some of the studios are trying to do is can they get more precise information about user and user preferences, right. and then can devise the promotional strategy, which is hopefully gives them a better return on their investment. So. Right. I don't know how much the production side is being affected by the data. Very unlikely that much is going on on that side. But how the distribution and promotion is being affected, at least in some places, you see some efforts being made where we can use the promotion and distribution and advertising more effectively than what we have done in the past.
0: Does that also impact the movie industry potentially with – and it seems like more and more now we are seeing – A film come out and be successful and then two or three years down the road there's a a, you know a second film a sequel right off of that and obviously star wars has done that and in indiana jones and there's plenty of examples of it but it seems like more and more we're starting to see that with you know you can run through a list of films especially ones in the last decade where it has success and there's another one ready to come out in three years
1: yeah, I think you know somebody could argue that uh, the sequels tend to have less risk. Yeah. In the sense that you already have uh, a loyal base who is yeah. willing to watch. Yeah. So maybe some of is being driven by that that you know you don't want to make the 150 million dollars investment. Right. Some of the concern. Some of it is also probably internationalization. but now movies make so much money outside the US where the big sequels automatic has the brand name that you probably don't have to spend so much time creating awareness in China or India or in Europe. Uh, and I think that that probably plays a role in, in, you know, creating content of that
0: type. Raul Talang is the co-author of the book, Streaming, Sharing, Stealing, Big Data and the Future of Entertainment. Uh, he is also a professor at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. So how is this going to continue to develop? I mean, obviously, the Netflixes and the Amazons and, and the Googles of the world ha- have sunk themselves the investment in this is so good and they've seen the results being so good that they no doubt will continue on this and continue to produce great content how is that you think going to well what's going to happen with the cbs's of the world the legendary entertainments of the world how are how are they going to continue to adapt in the next decade or two
1: so you know predicting future is difficult michael and i have resisted doing that uh, you know what we know for sure is that um First of all, the studios and the TV networks and the book publishers, they definitely have tremendous advantage in creating interesting content. Sure. They have a lot of experience in doing that. So right. clearly, that's their competitive advantage. Their challenge is that these distributors have become so powerful, you know, yeah. the Amazons and the Netflix, that that it's a competitive threat to them. Right. One way they could move forward, and they're already trying, is to patronize you know, multiple platforms, so that you know their best bet would be that these there are enough platforms competing with each other. Right. So there is demand for their content, right. and they have some negotiating power. Right. The other way would be to actually patronize some of their own platform. In fact, not many people might know Hulu, which yeah. is a reasonably successful streaming platform. Yeah. Was actually and is a consortium of studios. Yep, that's right. Um, it's just that is again, you know, the the way the decision making done at studio where everything is siloed and you know everything gets competed away. They really didn't pay as much attention to the growth of that platform, which could have been and probably is a very viable competition to Netflix.
0: So there's not as much concern about the fact that that a lot of this change has happened in such a quick fashion. Uh that you know the, the the Netflix and the Amazons of the world are used to that that quick turnaround mm-hmm. and now all the other entities within media are are getting used to it as well so that it's it's almost a new norm of how this industry is going to run
1: though again, you know a lot of it is gonna still depend on how the market is going to evolve, right? Yeah. I mean if it still so happens that Netflix becomes the dominant player, Um, and has this enormous customer base and this enormous data on which they make all these decisions and do it very successfully, I think the traditional players are going to be at a severe competitive disadvantage. And then we don't know, you know, how this market is going to evolve. You know, maybe maybe some mergers will take place. You know, maybe... Even Netflix success, we'll, we'll wait and see. I mean, the technology shocks can come in so many different ways. Yeah. So I think it's a very fluid market. All we know is the way people consume content and the way the content is going to be served to the consumers yeah. has changed. Now, who can take advantage of that and who is going to be the winner is, is is remains to be seen, I think.
0: I, I, I tend to like to watch sports. And the fact that I can watch sports, especially soccer matches from England, on the weekend on my phone
1: exactly cha- it,
0: it changes how you think Absolutely. about watching content
1: and and i think which platform can do that Yeah. you know more than the content producer I think which platform can make it easy for yeah. people to consume the content and and do it in a way that you can actually make some money
0: yeah absolutely you know
1: that's really the I think that's where the winning uh, the winning platform is going to be
0: nice to meet you thank you very much for thank coming in thank you Dan in.
1: thank you for having greatly
0: me greatly appreciate it Raul Telang, Professor of Information Systems and Management at Carnegie Mellon University the book is uh, Streaming, Sharing, Stealing Big Data and the Future of Entertainment you can book it up in bookstores and online right now